0: We have been going through a red letter study. Two months now, if you can believe it. We've we've, uh, we've been at it seven weeks. This is the eighth week. But it's been kicking up in some people, a lot of stuff from the bottom of the aquarium. So I thought what would be a good thing to do is to stop forward motion for a moment and consolidate a little bit. Let's talk about what we've been talking about. And let's talk about the significance of it as well. And this may be a precursor. There was one couple in particular that uh, threw a question out at me, and I want to try to hit that a little bit today. But it occurs to me that there could be a lot of questions that you all have. I believe that the best form of communication is one-on-one, and it goes down from there the more people you add. So if you think about it, this right now on Sunday morning is the least effective communication that I do. Because not only is it to a bunch of you, it's all one way. You know at intervals back in the day, we used to do what we called conversations on Sunday morning, where people would just ask questions and and uh, you know I would try to answer or at least you know steer the conversation in a useful direction but i 'm thinking that may be something that we can do next week if there are a lot of questions that you have about this red letter study or about really anything. but the red letter study that we 've been doing has been deconstructing jesus words and putting them back into what. We can reconstruct as best we can the original Aramaic context, the original Aramaic meaning, the meaning that Jesus' first followers would have understood, hearing his words and going through what they understood about the meaning of those words, the meaning of the idioms, you know, the phrases that that only mean what we agree they mean. And then also through their own culture, their worldview, their sense of history and science and everything else, what would they have understood? We can't get back into Jesus' head and mind and and glean his intent. That's impossible. But what we can do is say, okay, back in that context, in that time, as best as we can reconstruct, what would his first followers or anybody listening to the words coming out of his lips, what would they have understood by these words? And that's what we're trying to recreate. Because that's the closest that we can get. If Jesus didn't spend a lot of time trying to redefine a phrase or a term, then whatever image he was painting in their minds was okay with him. So we're going to do the same thing. Now, you could argue that his entire ministry was redefining kingdom because kingdom was something that they misunderstood, and he was trying to redefine it in a way that was helpful to them in finding their presence, finding the presence of their God. But when we're trying to do it from this vantage point... 2,000 years later, in a Western context, using a Western language, we have come very far afield from that context, that understanding, that Aramaic agreement, as I like to call it, what their culture agreed upon in terms of meaning, the way they looked at the world. And so it's up to us. The burden is not on them to communicate to us. The burden's on us to move back into their sandals and hear what they would have heard that's what we're doing. But at the same time, there's going to be a culture clash, right? Things that we have heard, like John three sixteen, for all our lives. And then Dave comes along and gives you this completely different paraphrase. What the heck? You know, this is what we want to talk about. This is what I wanted to, to stop and make sure that we're all on the same page. Because what you're going to find is, is that it's not going to be quite as jarring as you may have thought. Usually, not usually, always. It's both and and not either or. There are going to be elements of everything, things that you've heard traditionally and things that are coming out non-traditionally, even heretically here, right? But putting them together brings us back to a vibrant middle. That's where we want to be, in that liminal space, as we've called it, in the doorway, on the threshold, with feet in every camp so that we can really see what's there and not only what we have agreed to believe standing inside the walls of our own camp. And so this is this is the attitude we're trying to develop. This is the the the, the breadth of thought across Christendom that we're trying to bring into play so that we can get as close as we can to that understanding. So we're going to try to take and we have been trying to take Jesus' words and putting them back into this Aramaic context, trying to reconstruct the meaning. But we're going to be using valid and have been using valid hermeneutical concepts. This is what everybody uses to interpret scripture. There there are, there are rules here to interpreting scripture. We're following those rules, right? Coming to conclusions that we can debate till the cows come home, but at least we're following the right rules, right? And we're trying to come to this idea. Now, is this interpretation Are these paraphrases that I am giving you, are they right? Are they correct? Do they actually mirror what Jesus was trying to say? We can't know. There's absolutely no way to know. How would we know that? It was hubris on the part of the church to say that they knew what these scriptures meant, especially coming at them from a Greek point of view from Greek philosophy and Roman law and from a Western mindset to say that we understood this. And here is the monolithic answer. It's impossible for us to know, but in any language, any language, it's easy to see that Jesus is all about love. That's the primary thing. Everything that he talks about comes back to love. And it's not just a sweet, fluffy kind of love. You know, all kittens and unicorns. It is a muscular love. I love thinking about love that way. It's, it is a radical love. It's a love that is going to slap us across the face with its absolute universality, with the unconditional, indiscriminate nature of this love that he's trying to get across. That everybody gets it equally. There is no degree Whenever you arrive at work, you, you know, morning, noon, or night, you're going to get paid the same, no matter how many hours you work. See, we don't like that. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not just. If we are invested if, in the system itself, if we have worked hard, then we, like the elder brother of the prodigal, are not going to be happy when God loves the reprobate as much as he loves us. But this is the kind of love that Jesus is trying to get across what happens when all those phrases, passages, and and chapters and verses seem to be contradicting that, seem to be telling a different story? What do we do with those? How do we deal with that? When it seems like The message that is being conveyed in the Gospels is now performance-based again, that we need to pay to play, that we need to do something in order to win God's approval. And they're all over, right? What do we do with those? How do we understand what Jesus is trying to say if his message of love was so different than that? So as we read our scriptures, translated three languages later, 2,000 years later, into a completely different hemisphere and culture, And we are reading these passages that seem to contradict. How can we resolve that? How can we get back to love? Well, here's the thing. In now 25 years of doing this, every time I take a problem passage like that and bring it back into the Aramaic, bring it back into the context and the idiomatic understanding, it always resolves back to the Father's love every single time. I kept waiting for it not to, right? But it didn't happen. It hasn't happened. And now I don't expect it to happen. Because when we take this message back into that language, into that understanding, it always comes right back to this love. And those contradictions fall away. Now, is that proof that we've got the interpretation and the translation right? No, of course not. But it's pretty compelling. And what I'm going to be telling you up here is what I'm convinced of, right? I'm convinced. That this love that Jesus is talking about, that is so absolute, so unconditional, that we can't gain it because there's nothing to gain. It's already here. We can't lose it because it who, it's who God is. That the inherent seeming unfairness of that is the whole point of the good news. That's what we're trying to get. See, that's the heart of the matter. If God is love, and if love is perfectly indiscriminate the way Jesus is teaching it, then it can't be just a little bit performance-based at the same time. You can't be just a little bit pregnant, and you can't be just a little bit in you know performance-based if this love really is perfectly indiscriminate, perfectly unconditional. The tiniest bit a performance-based thinking, the tiniest bit of performance-based thought, takes us right back into wondering if we are really loved and accepted and approved by God. We will never know if we are loved if we have the tiniest bit of performance-based thinking and belief left in us. This is what Jesus is trying to eradicate. And we will always live in fear because we don't know what our state is. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, his way of living life, and this is what he gave us, is going to produce an experience of a truth that he says will make us free. Free of what? Free of wondering if we're loved, free of wondering if we're accepted, right? Free of the fear that that engenders in all of us. That's good news. And the good news is there is no bad news. I had to deal with that once. I was I was doing some of this online and I was laying out some of the things I just laid out to you and someone wrote back, you know, on the on the public bulletin board, oh good grief, you can't have the good news without the bad news. And my brilliant response was, the good news is there is no bad news. <laughs> I can't remember what he replied after that. But it's true. Jesus' good news is there is no bad news. And without that good news, there is no Jesus. Not a Jesus that we'd ever recognize. There is no Jesus because everything that Jesus is about hangs on this one truth, hangs on this idea of love. Everything about kingdom, everything about everything that he talks about is based on the fact that God's love is absolutely, unconditionally, indiscriminately perfect. Now I want to try to make this as simple as I possibly can. (laughs) Refreshing, right? And see if we can get right down to brass tacks about what what it is we're doing here. What's the method in the madness at the effect? What What is it we're trying to do? The effect at the beginning, 15 years ago, was founded as a recovery ministry and a recovery community. We were working in substance abuse. and. We wanted to put together a community that was a hub for substance abusers and people caught up in addiction in South County and then also worship together at the same time. And so we were kind of taking the idea of a community church that's more focused on theology and more focused on Sunday worship and, and worship services and turn that upside down and say, okay, we are a recovery community you know, that, that's based in the practical way of living into recovery. And we're also gonna worship together. Sunday will be another day of the week for us, but it'll be dedicated to that worship. So we're trying to take that and, and turn it around. Now, here's the thing. When you start working in substance abuse, when you start working with addiction and alcoholism, things get very stark, very fast. It cuts through all of the stuff and gets right down to life and death issues because these people are at risk absolutely at risk. I mean, part of our job is to just keep people alive long enough that they have a chance to turn a corner. And I can't tell you how many we've lost, how many overdoses we've suffered, suicide we've suffered, just death by despair that we've suffered, people that we loved and saw coming through and had high hopes for, and we lose them. You know, we just lost another one just last month. It happens. But this is what working in recovery is about. It's not going to be dealing, everything is stripped to essentials, so we don't have any room, we don't have any time for abstract thoughts, right, for cerebral ideas. Everything needs to be concrete. Everything needs to be specific. Everything needs to be focused on the next indicated step. How do we get from here to there and then to there and stay alive? And moving toward recovery, moving toward a new kind of lifestyle. Now, which direction are we trying to bring these people? Well, the first thing you know also is that addiction or alcoholism is a symptom of a deeper cause. It's not the cause itself. The cause of the dysfunction is deep in the unconscious, right? Has to do with core beliefs. Has to do with programs for survival and happiness that were installed by the user back in childhood to try to get through whatever was happening in the family of origin. And so those causes are deep down. And they drive the thought and behavior patterns. They drive the obsessions and the compulsions. It's the sum of a person's life experience that is going to take them in one of two directions. And this is what we're trying to ascertain. But our behavior really points it out. One, either we believe that we're worthy of connection Either we believe that we're already worthy of approval. Others, God, anybody. Either we believe that we're worthy of love right now, where we sit, just here breathing, or we don't. Now, there's a spectrum. It's not just black or white, obviously. There's a spectrum from absolutely no belief to full belief in worthiness and somewhere in between. And all we're trying to do is get to 51%, right? Right? just 51% because as soon as we cross that line and more often than not we do believe that we're worthy of connection and worthy of love everything starts to change in our behavior in our attitudes in the quality of our relationships we actually will be able to overcome our fear overcome our shame well what's shame well shame is the fear of disconnection this is right out of Brene Brown right The fear of disconnection that holds us back keeps us on the negative side of the 51%. But suddenly now we have the courage to realize we can risk finding out if this relationship is going to last, if it's going to be real. If this person sees who I am, they're not going to run screaming from the room, right? If they really knew me, they wouldn't want me. They wouldn't want to be in a relationship with me. This is what we run around with in our minds. So that... Dysfunction, those core beliefs from our childhood, those hurts and traumas and abandonments and everything that caused those beliefs are what is really driving the bus. That's the cause, right? It's either we believe we're worthy or not. But if we do, then we can live connected to others. We can have a sense of meaning in our lives. We can have a sense of identity. And if we don't, we're always going to be working to try to become worthy, or we're going to give up because we've just proven to ourselves it's never going to make a difference. We're never going to be able to get there. And whether we're trying or not to be worthy, we've got to ease the pain of the disconnection meantime. It's just too much to bear for any human. That shame, that fear of disconnection, it's what drives all the addictions. It's what drives the compulsions and the obsessions. And whether it's substance abuse or whether it's process addictions, things that we do repeatedly to try to give ourselves a sense of of comfort, a sense of connection, this is a cycle that we find ourselves in. And when I started working in recovery 25 or 30 years ago, whatever it's been, then one of the first things I realized is that everybody is recovering from something. There is not a single one of us who doesn't have unfinished business in our lives. And so to the extent that that is driving us in these negative directions, in these obsessive-compulsive ways to try to ease the pain of our disconnection, to try to ease the fear that we're not connectable, well, that is where Jesus' message comes in. No matter who we are, recovering from whatever we're recovering from, at whatever level we are at on that spectrum, right? Jesus comes and has the exact perfect thing to say, the exact metaphor that we need to be able to take the next step. He doesn't give us abstract ideas. He doesn't give us a theology. He wasn't trying to establish a church. He was trying to turn individual heart lights on to get them to see that you're already loved and worthy and acceptable right here, right now. Now, what are you going to do with that? And why don't you feel it? Well, that's where we get into the work, right? But it's a whole different trip now. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to answer the questions emphatically. And that's what he did with his life and his words that we are already worthy, already loved. So, If that's the case, and this is who Jesus is, and we've had a 2,000 year run at this, why are we still so neurotic? That's the question I'd like to ask. Let me see if I can answer it. Because there are two things that stand in the way of this truth that Jesus is trying to get across to us. What are they? First is the understanding of Scripture. Our understanding of Scripture is a blockage to this truth that Jesus is trying to give us. And second is our understanding of Jesus himself. And of course, pretty much everything we know about Jesus comes from Scripture, so maybe it's just one thing that's standing in our way, but I'm going to treat them as two because they kind of move in different directions. First of all, Scripture. Why is Scripture supposed to be our guide? Why is it a blockage? Why is it a, a, a hurdle for us or even a block wall for us in understanding Jesus' truth, this simple truth that we're already worthy of love? Because we take scripture literally, this is how we've been trained, this is how the western church especially has operated for 1700 years at least. We take it literally, but we take the scripture literally from an English and a western point of view. Now, I often tell people, I want to be the most literal guy in the room when I'm interpreting scripture. But my idea of taking scripture literally is to take it back into the original context, to understand it from that point of view, so that I'm not making or making as few mistakes as I possibly can. But to do that same process, sitting here 2,000 years later in a culture that is so alien to the culture that Jesus comes from, in a language that is so vastly different, that operates so differently based on our cultural worldview, is to do violence to the message, because when we do that, we read these passages, wherever they happen, whether they're in the Gospels, whether they're in the Old Testament, whether they're in the epistles of the New Testament, we see this performance-based attitude, we think. It looks like it's all about performance. We think of heaven, and we think of hell, then we think of judgment, right? We think of law that we have to keep. We think of the exclusion that the scriptures seem to imply, that if we camp under Jesus' banner, then we are saved to the exclusion of everyone else. All of these kinds of messages are conveyed to us when we are trying to take the scripture literally from a wrong point of view. Wrong is not a good word. From a different point of view. All right? This is what blocks us. Until we can view our scriptures from an Eastern Hebrew Aramaic, point of view, with that language, with that worldview in tow, then we will never know how to even use the scriptures, let alone understanding what they mean from the author's point of view. How are you supposed to use scripture? First thing is we have to be free to use it metaphorically. And I know that is anathema to, to so many hermeneutical scholars, you know, in the West but it was written metaphorically. It's the only way that you can convey something that is spiritual. It's not gonna be something that you can do logically, rationally. It doesn't exist on that plane. All we can do is point to it metaphorically. Jesus was a poet. We've gone over that over and over. He operates poetically, he thinks poetically, he speaks poetically. That's why the church is so much more focused on Paul because Paul is an administrator he runs small churches all over the eastern mediterranean by surrogate by letter he has to develop rules for the for the group to follow that we can hang a church on but jesus yeah he's our standard bearer but how much weight do we really give him because all this poetic stuff is so non-rational what are we supposed to do with it but until we finally admit and agree that so much of more of the bible is poetry than we ever give credence to and even if it's not technically poetry it's functioning that way with metaphor with figures of speech with symbolism trying to get these deep deep truths that will come right down and grab us in the unconscious not just the conscious it's the unconscious that's driving the bus and until these words get down in there and bring that stuff up into our conscious we can't change this is what scripture is supposed to be doing until until we are free for ourselves to let the metaphorical meaning of these passages become the primary meaning it doesn't mean that the literal meaning is not true but that we bring in the metaphorical and use that as our spiritual lever to be able to start moving us we can't get close to what is really there it can't happen and then when we view Jesus we view him from a passive point of view We view Jesus as doing all the work, the finished work of the cross. We talk about a vicarious atonement. Jesus does all the work of salvation. All we have to do is come underneath and be covered by the blood. All we have to do is pledge allegiance to a theological understanding of him, and then everything is taken care of. What is left for us to do except wait for the rapture or our death so that we get our reward? This is so antithetical to everything that Jesus said, everything that he talked about, Yeah, we're saved, but we still have to keep the law, right? There's still that performance-based aspect to this. And so when we look at Scripture the way that we do, when we look at Jesus the way that we do, everything shifts away from this idea of this perfect indiscriminate love and shifts back to that there is this primarily intellectual agreement that we have to make, and we have to keep performing in order to be finally approved by God so that when we die, that snapshot that happens at the end of our life is going to catapult us into everlasting heaven or everlasting hell. That's a frightening way to live, absolutely terrifying way to live. And everything about Jesus and the entire Bible is fear not. If there is any interpretation you have of the scripture that's causing you to live in fear, it's a wrong interpretation. Just flat out. I can say that with total confidence. And this is the crux of the work that we're trying to do at the effect. We're trying to remove those two blockages so that each one of you has a clear shot at being able to go where you want to go with your spirituality. We're not going to tell you what that is. We're not going to tell you what to believe. That's not our job. And to try to take that job is to take away from you your own responsibility to take your own journey, to engage in your own journey. And we would never do that. But we want to try, if we can, to remove these blockages and first to reconstruct a valid Eastern Hebrew and metaphorical interpretation of Scripture that is always going to point us back to the Father's love every time we do that. You can agree or disagree. That's fine. But that's going to be the method in the madness. That's what we're trying to do. And we're not trying to manipulate it to make it read that way. That's what it comes out to. And more and more scholars that are moving to this way of thinking are agreeing. We're seeing that over and over. When I started this work 30 years ago, there were so few books that you could buy on any kind of subject like this. Now there's dozens upon dozens, and I'm just grateful that the word is getting out, that more and more people are starting to see the scripture this way, and that there's a chorus of voices, because I believe that this is what Christianity is going to be in the following generations, if it exists at all. It's going to be emerging into this kind of understanding of the primacy of love and Jesus as that shower of that love, right? So we're trying to reconstruct that understanding of scripture and then we're trying to rediscover our own relationship with Jesus as an active partnership, as an active participant in his way of living life. That our job is not done until we are doing and becoming his way of living life. What he called the only way to the Father. That sounds exclusionary, but it's really not. He's just saying, this is the way you do it. This is the only way you can do it. If you're not willing to do this kind of work that strips everything away and takes you right down to the unconscious and brings that up into the conscious so you can let go of the things that are limiting and then reincorporate the things that are not... God loves you equally, but you won't know it. It won't be effective in your life. It won't change the nature of your relationships until you do so this is what we need to rediscover. Rediscover that there is an active engagement with Jesus to become his way. And this is not to gain God's love. We already have that. But it's to remove any belief that we have lingering, especially way down in the unconscious, that we're not worthy of that love. Because as long as we believe that, we get nowhere. Nowhere toward the truth that makes us free. I wanted to read you a couple of things to see if Put a finer point on this, and the first one comes from Richard Rohr, not unexpectedly, right Now, you know what Richard Rohr is just a guy; he's just a man, you know he's got about a you know several million followers, but he's just a guy, and he's been doing this for fifty years and studying and and ending up exactly pretty much where we are in terms of his understanding of Jesus' love and so on and so forth and and I suppose the Catholics haven't thrown him out yet, so there's that too, you know. But he has some credibility. Let's put it that way. You know, he's not the end and end all and be all, but he has some credibility. Listen to what he has to say about following Jesus. And this just came out this week. It's amazing how these serendipitous things start to happen, right? Coincidence? Yeah. Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, whoever wishes to come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake and that of the gospel will... We'll save it, and that's Mark eight thirty-four to 35. Jesus' message and way is intended to change our lives with its counterintuitive wisdom and call, but a blatant contradiction between message and action is holding us back. Christians too often preach a self-absorbed gospel of piety and religiosity rather than a lifestyle gospel. The gospel is so radical, that if we truly believed its message, it would call into question all the assumptions we currently hold about the way we live, how we use our time, whom we relate to, how we marry, how much money we have. Everything we think and do would be called into question and viewed in a new way. I believe that we rather totally missed Jesus' major point when we made a religion out of him instead of realizing he was giving us a message of simple humanity, vulnerability, and nonviolence that was necessary for the reform of religion and for the survival of humanity itself. This is a Jesus message that cannot and must not be allowed to be pushed into the background. Jesus is a person, and at the same time, a process Jesus is the son of God, but at the same time, he is the way. Jesus is the goal, but he's also the means. And the means is also, is always the way of the cross. The means is always the way of the cross. Jesus' message is the same as his life. His life is his message. For some reason, we want the person of Jesus as our God totem, okay, that image of God but we really do not want his path and message of descent, except as a theology of atonement, that this is what Jesus needed to do to save us. We don't want to see the cross as the pattern of life and a path for our own liberation. We prefer heavenly transactions to our own transformation. It is not insignificant that Christians chose the cross or crucifix as their central symbol, at least unconsciously we recognize that jesus talked often about losing your life perhaps ken wilber's distinction between ascending religions and descending religions is helpful here he and i both trust descending religion much more and i think jesus did too here is the primary lang- here the primary language is unlearning Letting go, surrendering, serving others, and not the language of self-development, which often lurks behind our popular notions of salvation. Unless we're careful, we will again make Jesus' descending religion into a new form of climbing religion as we have done so often before. The way of the cross looks like failure. In fact, we could say that Christianity is about how to win by losing, how to let go creatively, how the only real ascent is descent. Authentic Christianity is not so much a belief system as a life and death system that shows us how to give away our life, how to give away our love, and eventually, how to give away our death. Basically, how to give away. And in doing so, to connect with the world and all other creatures and with God. We need to be more concerned with following Jesus, which he told us to do numerous times, and less with worshiping Jesus, which he never once told us to do. Now, I don't know how that last line sets with y'all. I'm sensing some more stirring of the bottom of the aquarium right there. It's shocking, I know, but it's absolutely true. Jesus never pointed to himself. He always pointed to the Father. And the only times he pointed to himself was as the way to the Father. He said, I don't do anything of my own initiative. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I and the Father are one. This is something we need to start to at least think about. And I'm not saying that you're not going to worship Jesus anymore, okay? But where is it in the balance? And how do we understand worshiping? Is it just singing songs to him? Is it just our prayers, our worded prayers or thought prayers in words that we worship Jesus? Jesus said that at a certain point, a true follower is going to worship in spirit and truth. I think Jesus would be saying to us that if you want to worship me, worship me by doing what I do. Worship me by following this way that is me and is the only way to be able to clear the decks enough to see how the Father loves, that you already have that love, that you're longing for something and working for something that you already have, that the work is over here, getting rid of the blockages, getting rid of the limitations and the thought processes, the compulsions that block the necessary truth. We understand, in other words, Jesus' message passively, that we somehow can stand at a safe distance, remain untouched, right? And never have to do the hardest work that we'll ever do, which is this descent. To kind of go down like an archaeologist dig, down deep, sediment by sediment layer, into our past, into our unconscious, and find all the stuff that's down there. Who wants to really do that? We will do almost anything to avoid having to do that to feel that pain again. That is why those layers are actually there in the first place. If we can avoid the pain, we will do so. If we can avoid the uncertainty that this kind of work is gonna throw up into our lives again, we will do that as well. And we're gonna just pretend that Jesus does all the work, even though that's exactly what he told us that he wasn't doing. These things you see me do, you will do, and greater things than these if you are my follower. There is something we need to do. That work, that dissent, is the only way to truth, the only way to the freedom from the fear of our unworthiness, which is our shame. We have to actively engage. And we do that contemplatively, which is another huge pillar of the effect. We do it, have to, maybe we do it clinically. We do it therapeutically. We do it medically. We do it behaviorally. Are we willing to leave no stone unturned to be able to clear out all of the limitations that are keeping us from block and blocks our truth, this truth that Jesus is trying to get across, the second thing that I wanted to read is actually from my own book, so this is a shameless plug, um, but it 's just from the author 's note of daring to think again, and I just want it just meshes so well with what uh, Richard Rohr was reading, so just take a listen and see. I'm hoping that this is putting more and more finer point on what we're talking about. Over half a century ago, Marshall McLuhan famously said that the medium is the message. You all heard that one before? The medium is the message? No, really? Okay. By which he meant that the form of media we use communicates as much or more than the content. All right? The medium communicates the message, not just the content. And he would say, the medium communicates more than the content itself. So we got to be careful about which medium we're using. So the form of the media we use communicates as much or more than the content that is hitched along for the ride. Which communicates the loudest? The words or the actions and attitude of the speaker? When Francis of Assisi said that we should preach the gospel continually and use words where necessary, he's reminding us that the message and messenger, the content and the container, both have voices and must be consistent. It didn't take long for me working as a full-time pastor to question our use of church as the medium to convey an ancient Hebrew message. As it has come to be practiced in the West, church often implies that we can somehow intellectually absorb from neat air-conditioned rows that you're sitting in right now, a way of spiritual life birthed in the shadow of a desert mountain and lived out in the streets as a sweaty, messy, muscular journey to truth. What is the real message being conveyed by our spiritual media today? This question has remained on the tip of my mind as I've worked to pour content into this medium, a book, another book. Just a few generations ago, there wouldn't have been such a concern that the printed word would distort the message of an ancient spirituality rooted in the land and its people. But today... We've been conditioned to read less and skim more. We have conditioned our writers to write less and simplify more, to create the taglines and infographics that will quickly soundbite information into 21st century attention spans. In such a frenetic, ADHD-inducing environment, how can a current Western book become a partner, a faithful medium for a message challenging us to sell everything and follow a dusty, unassuming man along a path that unfolds only in real time, a primarily nonverbal medium that we will surely miss if we're moving any faster than a four-mile-an-hour walking pace. The Way of Jesus is a classic hero's journey, a rite of passage that Carl Jung called an almost perfect map of the soul. We live now as if we've outgrown spiritual maps, leaving formal rites of passage in our cultural dust along with even the memory of their importance to each of us. But without these markers of life transitions anchoring our day-to-day lives, we speed along too fast to resonate with the man who spoke from a world that moved at such a deliberate pace. It's no accident that Jesus never answered a question with a direct answer. Even when he was simply asked where he was going, his answer, come and see, brought questioner and answer emphatically and wordlessly face-to-face. Speaking in parables and riddles, stories and metaphor, Jesus is breaking down our dependence on abstract concepts and engaging us to live our daily lives as a medium for a message that can't be contained in words. We see him always working to make the voice of his medium and the voice of his message speak as one for those with ears to hear. Engaging the how of Jesus' medium before we consider the what of his message is the challenge that must be accepted first. How Jesus traveled his medium is the key to understanding the content of his message and not the other way around we will never be able to follow where Jesus is ultimately leading unless we first see how he traveled. Systematically clearing out anything standing in the way of his way. To those still seeking eternal life, life that is eternally alive, Jesus' original challenge to sell everything and follow him is metaphor for the willingness to uproot everything we think we know that may stand in our way. This is not a straightforward process. We don't know what stands in the way, so we must must become willing to sell it all and descend into uncertainty for a time, just as Jesus did in the wilderness, in the grave, and over and over throughout his life. Jesus said he was the way, the medium. Which means for Jesus, the medium is the message. Use words where necessary. We've got to be willing to let go of everything. It's the only way this works. If we're going to find out what is blocking our view of Jesus' truth, we have to be willing to let go of everything. That doesn't mean that everything stays gone, okay? We'll figure that out as we go. The descent is hard. It starts intellectually, deconstructing scripture, conscious ideas and beliefs, but that only drops us at the trailhead of Jesus' actual way. Then we need to start deconstructing the unconscious beliefs and emotions and behavior patterns. Both levels are hard, but if we don't get past the intellectual descent, then we never are going to get to the unconscious emotional and behavioral descent but maybe it's not quite as hard as we initially think. Remember to come back to the heart of the matter. Not to just that we're going to just reimagine scripture uh, from a Hebrew point of view for its own sake, but to believe that we are worthy of connection. That's the heart of it all. Connection by God and connection by others. Are you all there? Is that what you believe, that you're already worthy? Are you at the 51% mark, at least? Do you kind of travel back and forth between the light side and the dark side? You know, where are you at? Do you even know? Does this this even register yet? These are the questions that you need to be asking yourself. Because if it's not broke, don't fix it. If you already are feeling that you're worthy of God's love, if your life and the quality of your relationships already reflects that, then what is there to fix? What is there to re-understand or reimagine? Nothing. You're doing it. Intellectual understanding of anything, and especially when it comes to Scripture, is only as important as it allows the conviction of our worthiness of love and acceptance by God and others. If you've got that, you got it all. You're done. But, if questions still persist with you, if those fears kind of come and go, if you feel that fear that we're defining as shame of disconnection, coming and going, if you hesitate to let people see who you really are, if you're still projecting or posturing or, or putting on faces, if you feel like you're some kind of imposter, then you got to be honest with yourself and say, okay, down in the subconscious, no matter what I say, I believe there's something else going on. And it's only going to be that decent, it's only going to be that work that is going to show what's really going on, and there you need to dig in. And this is the example of John 3.16 that I wanted to give you, just quickly, because it was a question that was posed to me initially. What about John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Simple line from John, right? But it is so famous because it is seen as the entire gospel in microcosm the entire gospel is right there and so especially the evangelical branch of, of, of the christian uh, church has grabbed onto it as that one shorthand that that takes us back but there are three possible misunderstandings that we have when we read this from a western point of view i went through every single word of it last time and probably you know confused all the heck but just Just three little phrases here, just for today. The first one is, God so loved. When we hear that so in there, God so loved, we're immediately adding how much. God so loved, how much did he love? And as soon as we're asking how much when it comes to God's love, we're back to degree. If he can love this much, then he can love this little Jesus is trying to get across that there's no degree to God's love. It falls like the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust. There is no discrimination to God's love. Come early in the morning, late at night, you get paid the same. The elder brother's upset because the young brother gets a party, but this is God's love. If you can't handle the injustice of that because God's love is not just, what about God's justice? Yeah, but not with his love. But the good news is, He's always unbalancing the scales of justice in favor of the beloved. And as soon as we think so in terms of degree, which is naturally the way we understand that word in English, now we're back to the races again. Because it matches our love, which is always conditional, right? That's something we're comfortable with. That's something we understand. This unconditional love is so radical, takes us down paths that are so dark and scary and uncertain that we just don't want to go there. And so unless we're willing to break through that and understanding that that's so there has to do with manner, God loved in such a way that, but not so much that. And it may seem subtle, but it makes all the difference in the world if we're going to continue to look at Jesus, or at God's love, Jesus' love, as having degree, we're back to the races again. We're back on the hamster wheel again. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in this son of unity, not just an only begotten son, but the son of unity, whoever believes in him, right now we're thinking belief. It's intellectual. It's a mental agreement, mental assent. I agree to believe this. I agree to come to your side of the debate. It's a theological understanding. If we're going to be thinking about right and wrong is now, the ones the right ones that have the power to save and the wrong ones that don't. But this is not what this is dealing with at all either. This idea of belief is not gonna be a passive belief, one that we can just mentally agree to and then sit back and wait for our salvation, wait for the judgment. It has to do with trust. It has to do, again, with engagement. It has to do with faith. The word used there for belief always includes faith and always includes trust. Faith is action in the face of uncertainty, action in the face of doubt. That's biblical faith. It has nothing to do with mental belief. Maybe that you believe enough that you're willing to take a step in that direction and risk something. So this idea of believing has to do with the trust that is involved in being able to actually strike out into risk and follow what Jesus is doing? Are we trusting him enough to descend with him, to clear our way to a view of the Father's love that is absolutely world-shattering and life-changing? And then finally, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And immediately we're thinking in terms of heaven and hell, aren't we? Right? To perish or to have everlasting life? Heaven and hell, which means judgment, which means performance again. So we're right back. Every single one of these will chip away at the understanding of the love, the heart of the matter that Jesus is trying to get across from us if we just view them from that Western intellectual point of view. To not perish is to not fall away, to not be diverted. And everlasting life is not life that goes on forever in the, in the afterlife but life that is always alive and abundant and unexpected and fulfilling right here and right now. Life that is lived fearlessly right now, right here, because we know that we're already worthy of God's love, that we already have it. Jesus said, I came to bring life and life abundantly. And the only way that happens is if you have embraced this good news that he's talking about. All three points understood through this literal English Western point of view are going to negate that kind of love. They're going to create a performance-based gospel, which is anathema to Jesus, and it keeps us living in fear, keeps us living in shame. But on the other hand, what if it doesn't? What if you understand God John 3.16 in a totally modern Western evangelical way, and yet you still live without that fear. You still live understanding that you're already worthy of Jesus' love. Is that even possible? Absolutely it's possible. And because it's possible, once again, the understanding, the intellectual understanding is not the key thing. We've been taught that way, that understanding these theological points exactly is the most important thing. To God's acceptance? No. The most important thing is does your life look like Jesus? Are you living in that reality He called kingdom? That place of fearless vulnerability? Are you living there? If you are, it's not broke. Don't fix it. But maybe what you can do is add on these layers of Hebrew meaning to what you already understand and get an even more expansive view. Maybe it even takes you past the 51% mark to 61%, but it's not either or, it's both and. You don't have to let go. Add on to, expand, and see if this brings you something. And if it doesn't, take what you need and leave the rest. It's for those of us who need this. I needed this. I can't tell you how much I needed this 25 years ago. The way that I was living, the fear that I was under, the stress, the anxiety. I can't even tell you. There were times I didn't think I was going to get through the day. I remember pacing in my room and just crying out, make the hurting stop. That's where I was. I needed this so badly. If you don't, that's okay. But I'm going to tell you what saved me. This, this knowledge first and then an experience of... It took me into a completely different place. That's how you can treat this. Don't let it derail you. Don't let it break the conversation. Consider it. But be honest with yourself. Where are you on that fear meter? Where are you in terms of kingdom, in terms of understanding Jesus' love this way? And keep your eyes on the heart of the matter. Jesus was all about the good news, that we're already worthy. And then he said, and here's how you will know that you will have that intimate experience of this truth so that it actually sets you free, so that it actually takes you where you want to go. This is it. This is how you can use the teachings here. This is how you can use the scriptures that have been left for us. This is how you can use the presence of God And Jesus, in your life, day to day, everything that I teach will be what I and others. I don't bring you anything unless I've found it at least three places, okay? What I have become convinced of, what has helped me descend to the places I needed to go to so that I could come out the other side and start to have a different sense of life. I could drop my nets, I could sell everything, I could pick up the cross and follow this Jesus that I will be following for the rest of my life. Now you must go and become convinced of what you're convinced of. That's it. Nobody can do it for you. Not me, not the Pope, not anybody, not even Jesus can do it for you. And this is what he was trying to get across to us. It's up to us. Everything is here for the journey. Every tool, every guide, everything that you will ever need is here, but you still have to do that yourself. Just make sure that all your work and the descent and the deconstruction that you go for, that you endure, that you engage, is always pointed directly at the heart of the matter. Do you believe that you are worthy right now where you sit of this absolute love of God? Enough that you're willing to risk be connected in life. That's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, this is everything. Help us to see it as clearly as we can, so that we can even evaluate ourselves. Where are we? What do we need? And how can we overcome whatever needs to be overcome to find out, to experience, to live the life that you have given us? That's what we want. So help us, Lord. Each day, help us to take another step in the direction that takes us to the heart of the matter, the matter that you have laid out for us, the one that is central to you, that Jesus has conveyed to us so beautifully. Thank you father for everything that you do every moment help us to see it as such and never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first and we pray all this in jesus name amen now just a second See, so conditioned this is great um how many questions do you all still have I mean, about specific things, I mean, John 3.16 stuff. In other words, what, I would li- what I'm giving you is a, a week's head start. If we say that next Sunday we're going to do conversations where it's just going to be question and answers at this point, you know, I, I won't bring any new material. Just, this, is what, this was a setup for that possible time of question and answer. Do you have questions you would like to ask? Yes. Yes? Okay, absolutely, then let's do that. So next Sunday, uh, it's just going to be um, Pound the Pastor Sunday, and uh, I'll just have my handheld mic, and we'll just see what happens, all right? Yeah, it'll, it'll be great. It'll be okay, now Stan.